Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Kyle Dillon Hertz's The Look Back Window is a novel about a young man's past full of impossible pain and trauma, and the possibility that by paradoxically looking backwards at the past, he might free himself from that unimaginable burden. We are introduced to the narrator, Dillon, when he and his partner, oh, I'm going to pause, is it? Moans or moans? Moans. Moans. Okay, I'll start that sentence again. We are introduced to the narrator, Dylan, when he and his partner, Moans, are visiting a clothing-optional resort in Florida, surrounded by natural beauty and the beauty of men of all ages, sizes, and colors. That Edenic backdrop is pierced by the news that a law has been passed which allows child sex abuse and trafficking victims a period of time, a look-back window, during which a decision can be made as to whether to pursue legal action against the perpetrator. Dylan's agonizing deliberations over that choice, to look back or to plow forward, will be the catalyst to both the pursuit of a numbing out of feeling and presence and the potential of healing through a direct embrace of all that he carries in his memory and in his body. The look-back window works through Dylan's pain with a beauty on the sentence level that appears to mirror the love and belief that Kyle pours into his characters. The delicacy of the prose speaks a different language than the abuse of the content, and that language is one of hope and belief even in the acknowledgement of horror and despair. As the unfurling of a past into the present overwhelms Dylan and those he cares for, the novel begins to ask questions about justice and vengeance and recovery. In this way, the look-back window takes a stand for art as a means of confronting the enigmatic status of those principal human responses to trauma. And it asks us as readers to look directly at the very things that are too often relegated to the shadows of society. Kyle Dylan Hertz is the author of The Look Back Window, a New York Times editor's choice. His work can be found in Esquire, Freeman's Time, and more. He received his MFA from NYU and a residency from Yaddo. He teaches at the New School. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you for having me. I want to start by by talking about the what is very, very difficult content in the look back window. 
It's a story of extraordinary trauma and, and child sex abuse and child sex trafficking. But it's also a story of recovery and an attempt at the restoration of a mind and a heart and a body. How did you decide to write a novel that would carry so much pain? And what were your worries and hopes for fiction that deals so directly with child sex abuse? One of the main reasons I wrote this novel is that I myself was going through the Child Victims Act um, while I was in treatment at the Crime Victims Treatment Center. And this happened while I was also in grad school at NYU. So I it, cannot imagine those two things going together. Uh, they don't and they do in the sense of like, you know, because I had this space to kind of talk about what I was going through. That also meant I had a space where I could write about something along those lines and then talk about it in in therapy. I mean, my therapist has... Um, probably talked about this book more than any person on earth mm. and that structure was was kind of helpful in 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 both ways because on one level i i had almost like what i thought of as like a like a playground to kind of you know write about violence write about childhood sex abuse all this stuff that i was going through but because it's fiction you know a lot of it is is quite different than my life so it it was you know it was a uh, a different way to kind of engage in the material, a different way to think about it. Because when things happen to you, that can be so difficult to actually figure out what you think, what you feel, what you want to do. You know, that's life is so much more difficult than fiction in that way. So by kind of imposing a narrative structure and characters and all the, the elements that make fiction fiction, it permitted me, what I want to say is like literally a sense of play in this kind of horrifying realm that I was living in, which freed which freed me from some of the things that I do not normally feel free from. And, I, and then the other part of it is that I, I simply just like books like this. You know, my favorite uh, book is Angels by Dennis Johnson. And have you read it? I, I haven't, no. It's so good, but there's like a three-page, you know, really horrifying rape scene. There's all this, there's so much violence in it. But I, again, I, you know, I found fiction to be such a freeing place for me as a reader, as a writer, as a person that engaging in these types of things within those set structures have been one of the greatest pleasures and kind of like intellectual experiences of my life. And did that that ordering that that you talk about with the narrative structure did that help you then kind of reflexively apply an ordering structure to the trauma that you were trying to deal with as you were actively both in an MFA program and um going through the process uh, of of being being treated and and also trying to to look forward when i had heard about the child victims act I start. I started the book before the act existed. I was in the treatment program at the Crime Victims Treatment Center, which, if if you don't know, it's like it, in New York. If you're the victim of a crime, um, of a violent crime, New York will kind of pay for your therapy. So this. Oh, like, I didn't realize. Is it state funded then? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, that's amazing. It's it's actually it, it exists in the entire country. I mean, this is like a. I'll keep this rant short, but one of the things you learn when you kind of go to an appropriate place for treatment and when you kind of get involved in in violence and all of these things, 
is there's actually programs that can heal you. I had spent like literally 27 years, not 27, because this didn't happen when I was a baby, but I'd spent many, over a decade of my life kind of lost and eventually realized, oh, wow, there's actually all these places that can help you if you need it. And this program um, exists countrywide. It's, the name escapes me, but it's something like, you know, the violence bill or, or whatever. And so this exists anywhere in the country. Within two hours, if you're the victim of a violent crime, there is a place where you can get treatment for free by specialists who are actually quite knowledgeable about this stuff. So, yeah. But that's so important. And will you will you give me a, a link later on to that? And I'll put that on the website just so if anyone is is looking to to reach out in that direction that they have a, a little bit more information. Yeah, totally. I mean, that that learning about all this stuff has been such a, you know, a shock in some ways and also so beneficial in a lot of ways because you can so easy to feel like down about the way the world casts aside people who need help most but there actually is quite a few there are quite a few things that are helpful but anyway so yeah. i had started um conceiving of this writing this book before the act actually passed i was kind of writing into the future a little bit and oh wow you really were i i just like had to right it's like it's kind of like a for me you know the child victims act seemed like such a kind of terrifying Christmas present that it was like almost like circling the closet I know where my parents are hiding the gifts because I just like want to open it so badly <laughs> um, and so by the time so then it happened and the act passed and I ended up just like acting on instinct in my personal life with going so fast that the novel could have never ordered real life because I was going so quickly, trying to just achieve as much as I could within the time frame of a year, this limited kind of narrative structure to real life. But what the novel did help order was my thoughts and feelings about what happened. Because when you go through violent trauma, it can be so difficult to know what you think and how you feel. And this space, because obviously fiction is so much, writing is so much slower than life, it made me slow down and think, well, what did I actually feel here? What do I wish had happened? You know, if if what I wished happened, how would I have responded? What would I, how, what would I have liked to have done? And that ended up being an emotionally rewarding experience. Uh, let's talk about the title for a second, The Look Back Window, which reads doubly as both the codicil to the Ch Child Victims Act that is passed in New York at the beginning of the novel, and which allows a window of time during which an adult can choose to pursue legal action against an abuser from their childhood. And as well, it is Dylan's most difficult personal trial, whether to look back fully at all that happened to him in order to find a healthy and possibly happy way forward. I'd love to hear you talk about how this became the title and also how that double reading plays for you in the novel. Um, initially, I had a very different title. I wanted to call the novel Frontiers, and everyone basically said, this is a shit title. <laughs> uh, That's so nice. <laughs> I, you know, not, a, not in as many words, but I remember I was at my mentor, John Freeman's house, and Nic Nicole Aragi was there. And I was, uh, you know, about to basically summarize the book. And at the very last second, I remember just how shitty everyone thought Frontiers was. 
Um, oh, no, it wasn't Frontiers. It was called Midnight Voyage, based off the Mamas and the Papas song that I love. Mm. Um, Frontiers was another shitty book that I wrote before this. <laughs> uh, you know, they kind of pile up like that. Um, and it just, it came out naturally. It seemed so obvious. And then it just stuck completely from there. It's a strange thing to call a novel about such difficult things beautiful. But at the sentence level, this is a novel of immense beauty. There's so much care that has been put into the prose in your fiction. And I wonder if it was ever painful for you to give such ugly experiences such beautiful language and description. I'm, on one level, on some level, yes. I, I was having some, some difficulty writing writing about this for a few months and did some not great things with drugs um, in kind of response to it. And I, it was, it, it was almost like a stupefying experience. I couldn't figure out why it was so hard for me because I was talking about it all the time in therapy, but it was actually, you know, the idea of being received this kind of novel being received by people who did not intimately know me yeah. that terrified me. And once I kind of spoke that out loud, I Im immediately kind of shifted my, my emotions kind of shifted, my fear shifted because it ended up being that I was writing quite clearly about something that had been so difficult and the clarity in my own life in terms of talking about recovering from childhood sexual abuse freed a lot of my shame, fear, all of that stuff. And so as the project deepened, being writing clearly ended up being, you know, one of the major goals of this book. And so to me, the beauty a lot of the times comes from the clarity of having of portraying such a disorganized traumatized mind which most people have who go through this kind of things don't really get that ex have a difficult time achieving that so you know it, that kind of sentence level beauty sentence what i would call like sentence level clarity um ended up becoming deeply meaningful to me. And then now that the book has come out, it has become deeply meaningful to people who had gone through that, but who have a very difficult time kind of verbalizing what it feels like to go through these things. Mm, I hadn't even considered that the, the kind of the function of trauma being one to create a chaos in, in your mind might be in some ways addressed through a sort of direct and utter clarity in, in description. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, that is a lot of how I came to understand, you know, what violent trauma does to your mind, which is, you know, you're when you, you, you can't place memories in the right order, you, it's so painful that your, your, your mind displaces it for you. And you see this as the book goes on. Um, cause because the novel in some ways is like, you know, an exercise in, in structure and clarity where a good portion of the book, of the early parts of the book, where Dylan is attempting to come to terms with what happened or address what happened, however you want to put it. It's, it's quite a bit um, disordered. And the longer time goes on in the book, the more clarity, the more chronological 
continuity you see Dylan have, although, although you do see it a bit in that first section, the paradise section at the clothing resort, because at that point, Dylan is so repressed and so trying not to think about what happened. He's achieved a kind of false continuity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. lives on the surface, but is not totally real. Yeah, that it, it's this um, it, it's a wonderful sleight of hand at the beginning because we we feel like we're we're with someone who has has gotten things together and feels very sort of clear about the direction of his life. And um, but that sort of falls away into this, you know, a fragmented and, and chaotic mind, but which manages through your prose to come across so clearly to us. One of um, one source of Dylan's trauma is his parents' failure to see and react to his abuse by Victor and the men who bought Dylan from Victor. They don't see his pain and terror, and they allow him essentially to be swallowed up again and again in that violence. What was important to you to get across in the failure of that key relationship? There's so many reasons that child sexual abuse occurs. And again, the the more you kind of study this, learn about it, talk about it, you realize that it is frequently an issue or it is frequently an, an issue of, of just like a lack of involvement. And on some level that, you know, I see the parents' failure in this book as almost like a lack of supervision that for for a variety of reasons occurs you know I, I think when this the 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 childhood of dylan is still during a period of time when you know it was like okay to be gay but it wasn't like it is now and so there was a bit of just like maybe not looking as closely as one might look now at a child because you know that child is is gay and maybe you don't want to accept the truth or maybe it makes you uncomfortable, whatever the reason. And then you add on top of it things in the book, like the fact that Dylan is adopted. So, you know, there's all of these kind of little things that add up toward the parents in this book, just not fully looking and and giving attention to what Dylan is going through. And also it's, it can be difficult to look at someone who is clearly going through some kind of pain. I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. The, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized how true that is. And I can, you know, I can't, I don't know what that's like because I don't have children, but I imagine it is quite difficult to not fully know what's going on with your child and maybe even to that and then just some symptoms of something horrible happening. I could, I could understand, although it's not great, why you may not want to fully ask questions. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. There's there's a an analog here in a way with Dylan's partner Moans, who has an extraordinarily difficult time dealing with the revelations of of Dylan's past and and abuse, as therapy is bringing out more and more from that Dylan had sought to tamp down and forget. Moans must vicariously experience that trauma, which brings up his own past. The novel raises the question of uh, how much a person can hold of a partner's past um, and when that load becomes too heavy. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So part of the structural 
one of those part of the one of those major structural structural elements of my book is there is essentially five different ma major characters. You have Dylan, you have Moans, you have Vincent, you have Alexander, and you have the therapist Matan. And each of these characters sort of represents a different way that people address trauma. And one of Moans's methods of dealing with trauma is simply to not deal with it, not think about it. You know, this character comes from quite a religious upbringing where repression, um, you know, was kind of the mode. He comes from an abusive family where he watched the mother in his, his life learn how to get on with life by simply not addressing it or looking at it after she had escaped the abuse. And the truth is, this does sort of work for people. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm, it, it really does. You, you know, historically, many people have, have done this and have moved on with their lives, maybe not fully, maybe not completely, but enough to still li live a life. And I think you see the success of the successes and failures of Mung's repression of trauma, whereas you see, and, and you see the same with Dylan, except it starts to fail more than it starts to succeed for him. Mm -hmm. And the friction mm -hmm. between repression and moving on versus confrontation and moving on is is one of the main ways that this brief marriage fails. And you, I think you can't take, you, you can't take on too much of what your partner is, is going through. But you can definitely create space for them to deal with it. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, Moans was simply too afraid of what was going to happen if Dylan succeeded in dealing with his trauma, that he attempts to exert certain kinds of control over him, not because he doesn't love him, not because he's an abuser, but because that's part of how he grew up. And that's just how he responds to fear it's such an interesting and perplexing part of it and you and and as a reader you you root for them and and yet you see that the the way in which there's not space for for moans to process things and the the rapidity and the constancy with which these things are sort of coming out of dylan means that they are are likely to to fail but it is a uh, it, it, it's something that's painful in the novel to watch happen, for sure. The, the only other element that is kind of, again, this is like a, just a subtle thing that, because you, you can't explore everything fully in a novel, you, you do your best to kind of put some seeds in there. But one of the, the other like things that really kind of facilitates this dynamic is Moons grew up a, at different points homeless. So success for Moans a lot of the time had to, was making sure that he was like uh, financially able to live a life. And so if that, you know, a part of Moans is if he deals with everything, if he blows up his life, like Dylan is going to blow up his life, the childhood fear of like houselessness and financial instability, I think supersedes Dylan's because Dylan had mm -hmm. a bit of a more mm -hmm. comfortable upbringing. And so that's also kind of the financial element of trauma. It, I mean, is a big part of the book, but that's just one of those kind of like subtle character things that's happening there that differentiates the ways that they are able and want to kind of address this trauma. Yeah, have you? Are you aware of the the novel "It's Not Nothing" by Courtney Donnell? No, I haven't heard of it. 
I, I really recommend it. Um, she is, she'll be a, a, an interview down the pike for me, um, but it is about um, uh, a, a woman who is uh, homeless at various times and, and Courtney herself has dealt with being unhoused. Uh, and, and I just really recommend it. I think it's extraordinary. I'll definitely read it. Uh, there's an excruciating moment in the novel in which um, Dylan tells his therapist that, quote, what happened to me happened to me. That means for the rest of my life, I will be that person. And each person I meet, I will either have to lie to or tell the truth. And then they'll think of me as that person. His therapist tries to explain that he has the potential to be free or to seek freedom from that experience of having been sold and abused, but that's a difficult thing to process and believe in. What were you thinking about when you when you process this idea of Dylan's conviction that he will always be that terrible thing, whether it is something he has dealt with or not? Part of Dylan's uh, journey throughout the book is attempting to figure out, like, obviously what it means to have to have gone through being trafficked, to have and raped have been this this thing that impacted his life to such a degree he almost wasn't aware of it again because he was repressing it or, or temporarily happy all these lies he told to himself and i think in this way when you go through such violence at a young age you are just not aware of what it does to you you're not aware of all the side effects so that by the time you're addressing it when the side effects become very clear, you know, with the drug use, with, um, you know, his reactivity with his CPTSD, he's much more aware of what he has done in and so ashamed of the ways that this has impacted him. So he's almost looking more so at the destruction in his life that he himself has caused and that has been caused to him rather than the fact that, you know... <laughs> everything is pretty temporary in life and things can change to such a great degree. And and then you also have the fact that he sort of believes that once people know things, once people know what has happened to you, it is easier for them to treat you in a way, which although it's not universally true, I do feel like has a good bit of truth to it. Mm. I want to talk about uh, the cover for a second, which is is really striking. And uh, I, I read that is it in fact is either a direct or indirect representation of you and your husband. But it has this wonderful effect that if you're looking at it from a distance, it can feel um, or appear like an abstract image. And I wonder if you talk about the cover a little bit. Uh, yeah, so I looked out with having like the most amazing editor who's Tim O'Connell and he had basically run some like cover ideas by me or asked for my input and then just we, we didn't talk about it again. And so I get an email from him randomly one day with some cover options. And one of them is this picture you're talking about, which despite my husband having absolutely nothing to do with this book, it, everything that's it's kind of based on predates him. Um, it is a picture of my husband and I kissing at a rave at this place called Paragon in Brooklyn, mm. since I'm, I'm kind of a rave rat or, or <laughs> historically have been a rave rat. And I, it's, the book is such a New York book. And this picture, my editor said, is just such a like queer New York picture, nightlife, all those vibes. 
And as you said, it it does on sub it does work as both an abstraction. Then if you look at it, you realize it's two men kissing, which one is extraordinarily rare for a cover to have two men kissing on it. Yeah, and absolutely is. I could the only I could, the only two I can think of are the UK cover of um, Doug Stewart's new book, and then m- one of my all time favorite novels, which is Dancer from the Dance by Andrew Holleran, which also works um, sort of from far away as an abst- a black and white abstraction. And then the closer you get, you realize it's two men in a bar kissing. Yeah, I, until you said that, I had not realized how rare it is. My goodness, it's I can't think of, I, I don't know either of those two covers that you you mentioned, but I I'm having trouble thinking of even one. Um, and and that's a, a an amazing and and somewhat uh, despairing thing, but it's, I, I love this cover and I do feel like it has a New York vibe to it. And, um, I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about the power of place and what, um, a queer New York does in this novel. I'm setting is such an underused, but deeply important part of writing. I mean, if you listened in on my class, it's literally me like yelling at people every workshop like you're from somewhere like place place informs everything (laughs) and and they listen they'll they they of course once they get it they get it but place informs literally everything from the laws to the people to just the way you move and i've spent i grew up in rochelle so like on the border of the bronx and spent a few years in california but then came back to new york and i've been here for quite a long time now i I'm just so grateful to be from a place that values, to me, to some degree, uh, you know, queer people that values art, that values writing, where there's such a, a population of people trying to do very cool things. And that that is expressed in this book to a great degree, partially due to the fact that, you know, you realize that the places you love only last for so long. And I wanted to make sure part of my goal as an artist is to put into history the places that I find important. And you, so you see it in terms of the gay bars in this book, you see it in terms of the bathhouse and that's in this book, which by the way, I think like shortly after I sold the book, um, you know, went under, like it disappeared, closed. Ah. And I wanted to make sure that it's it's recorded in history somewhere. I, I, I do you uh, know Rashid Newson's uh, "My Government Means to Kill Me." Yes, I love Rashid. Yeah, it, I, he was a wonderful interview, and and that's a book that similarly is trying to preserve things um, in a way that uh, you, you know there's a there's a transience to places like that to rave houses and and bathhouses and 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 often queer spots of communion that will that will leave for financial reasons or in his case for government reasons and there is a way in which fiction can work to preserve those things and and I like now being able to think of the look back window as a, as a novel that does that I mean it is the whole you know, the whole pr- purpose of this book is, you know, the look back window gives you one year and then it's gone. It's over, which uh, is actually not true anymore because they're thinking of <laughs> reopening a, the child look back window next year, which I am starting to think is actually quite perverse um, and a little bit traumatic to have this one year and then it's done. So get it now and then it's coming back. It's like a sale on your humanity, which I don't love. But, mm. you know, 
this is just this is just life in general is everything goes so quickly so much faster than you think especially in a place like this in new york especially when it's you know queer people or whatever it is and i, I am i'm drawn to that i i like reading an older book i i like the kind of I like touching history. And occasionally when you read some contemporary novels, you get the sense that they're attempting to escape history, that they're attempting mm-hmm. to for allied it, whether it's with the way people talk or the lack of setting or the lack of technology. Mm-hmm. And I find that so just like a fundamental misunderstanding of the power of fiction and the and how fiction is immortal. Like immortality is not reached through you know, generality, it's, Mm -hmm. it's reached through specificity. You know, when you think of, when you think of the people you love, you don't have a generalized picture of them. You have quite a specific picture of them and that's what keeps them in your mind. So to just, an outline is not the same thing Mm -hmm. as the architecture of a blueprint. Boy, I'm going to think about that phrase. Immortality is not generality for forever. That's a really (laughs) great way. I hope you say that to your students all the time because it's it's pretty great um I, before i let you go i'd love to hear a little bit about what you're reading and loving recently and whether you have some books you'd like to recommend for my listeners the first book it's it's not really up till next year but megan nolan's new novel ordinary human failings is so incredible she's such a great writer um she also wrote acts of desperation Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you read it? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, you should have her on if you haven't spoken to her yet, because she's brilliant. Um, oh, I'd love to. A real and, person. And do you know when uh, Ordinary Human Failures, do you know when that comes out? Yeah. Okay. It's right in front of me. It comes out in February 2024. Oh, great. Great. So people won't have too long to wait for it. No, not too long. And then the other... I guess the two other ones, Dancer from the Dance by Andrew Holleran, if you haven't read it, like the, the classic gay literature, it's it's so stunning. And I recently was in Miami at the book fair doing an event with him, My Hero, which was extraordinary. Oh, but I, wow. <laughs> that it, must have been was, wonderful. Oh, to uh, to hear your hero, like, say they love your, your book. And it's, I've just like, I've, all my other heroes are low-key dead. So, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not exactly communing with them here, but it, it was it was great. And then another book is Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Connell, which I reread this year. Just such an extraordinary classic of like mid-century fiction. Have you read that one? No, I don't know it at all. I promise you, you're, you'll speed through it in a day. There's a great article by Amy Bloom, I believe, in the New York Times recommending it. It's such a funny, weird, strange, dark book that seems so shallow at first, but is actually one of the most moving portraits of a family that I've ever read before. Oh, wow. Oh, I can't wait. That sounds, that sounds great. I, I love to, you know, Dancer from the Dance has been on my my loose radar for so many years and I haven't and I haven't gotten around to it. So I'm going to have to make a pledge for this year to be the year that I read it. But these all sound great. And and Kyle, thank you so much. I This book is so important and it and it resonated with me in just so many different ways, personal and otherwise. And I think everyone should read the look back window um, get it from your local indie bookstore and enjoy the the beauty of it even about dark and difficult things so thank you for coming on kyle 
thank you so much for having me. I, I love this podcast. So uh, I'm really really excited to be on it. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Kyle Dylan Hertz for coming on the show to talk about his extraordinary and important new novel, The Look Back Window. You can find links to purchase The Look Back Window and all of Kyle's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.